As I said earlier, universities exist to discover, apply, transmit, and preserve knowledge. All our activities, at least indirectly, must subserve these goals. I see genuine value in intercollegiate athletics. I am not here to tell you that we should do away with intercollegiate athletics. Just to the contrary, undertaken with integrity and good sense, intercollegiate athletics creates pride in the institution. It connects alumni, students, faculty, and the wider community. It generates sufficient revenue through the two primary revenue sports to support other teams, including a full range of women's teams. We must renew the reform movement, academics first. We must renew the reform movement, academics first. Thank you. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. In episode two, titled Red Grange, Transistors, Two Nights, and Genomics, we're going to wrestle with one of the most fundamental questions in all of the history of college sports, and that is, why are universities in the business of big-time college sports? And dancing around that central inquiry are two other questions. One, how do we reconcile professionalized, commercialized college sports with the academic missions of our universities? And then a second and related question is, do we have our priorities straight in higher education and its relationship to big-time college sports? The answers to those questions have been the bane of institutional academic stakeholders for almost 100 years and have inspired reform efforts, mostly through external private foundations and academic interests that have created and reinforced narratives that are fundamentally hostile to the marriage of big-time college sports and the academic intellectual mission of major universities. And, and that's what I was referring to in episode one when we were talking at the 30,000-foot level about all of the stakeholders and how they relate to each other. And the, this symbiotic relationship between the external reform efforts and the in-system stakeholders, and there's a lot of crossover there. So to understand why universities are in the business of big-time college sports, it's important to provide some context for the way that the academic interests and these external reform-minded groups and then the internal decision-makers and stakeholders, how they think about the issue. And one of the things that I think has gotten lost over this discussion, really going back to the early 20th century, is that the decision makers at the institutional level have complete authority and power to decide whether and to what extent they're going to be involved in the business of big-time college sports. In a lot of the rhetoric that's come out of these reform movements, there's this sort of invisible assumption that floats above it that the universities that are participating in this big-time sports business have no choice. 
that there's some celestial uh, mandate or some constitutional requirement or some edict from, from the education gods that require them to try to participate in the big time college sports sweepstakes and then to try to reconcile the tension between that and their perception of the primary purpose of uh, major universities and the academic and intellectual mission of those universities. The fact of the matter is that any university in the United States of America currently participating in the big-time college sports sweepstakes could decide tomorrow that they are done, they're out, they quit. They believe it, that it is inconsistent with the academic and intellectual mission of the university, and they're no longer going to participate in this hypocrisy. That's how they see it, and they have the complete power to change it. People forget that in the 1930s, the University of Chicago was a member of the Big Ten. It had a powerhouse football program, and it employed one of the most prolific college coaches in the history of college football, Amos Alonzo Stagg. Well... Based in part on influence from the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching and a report that it issued in 1929 on American College Athletics, that I'm going to talk about here in just a minute. The president of the University of Chicago believed that the fundamental message of the Carnegie Report, which was really hostile to the existence of big-time college sports in uh, major universities, he decided that maybe the University of Chicago uh, would be better off jumping off the treadmill, the big-time sports treadmill. And in 1939, the University of Chicago got out of the, the business of big-time football. And then in the 1940s, it left the Big Ten altogether. Now, what I would say to some of these academic critics of the current system is that you could do what the University of Chicago did, and they make all kinds of excuses about stakeholders and backlash and all that, and then they, in their criticisms, will throw out some pro forma you know, milk toast statement that claims to support big time athletics. And then, of course, the remaining 99% of the analysis is making the case that they're incompatible and irreconcilable. But there's nothing stopping the universities from getting out of the business of big time college sports. And in separate episodes, we're going to walk through all of the reform efforts that have been used to define this basic narrative that there is an irreconcilable and unhealthy tension between the goals of big time college sports and the academic and intellectual missions of the universities. And that goes back to the 1920s, as I noted, in the Carnegie Foundation and then was carried forward in the 1990s through the Knight Foundation and the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. And they issued five reports over 20 years, uh, three of which were consequential. We're going to talk about each of those. And then the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation was really crucial in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s in funding research that went to to really undermine the, the benefits of big-time college sports. And they, they did that through the publication of a couple of, of books that they sponsored. Uh, one, one is called The Game of Life, and the other is called Reclaiming the Game. And then the Mellon Foundation also was involved in sponsoring the research and writing 
on perhaps the seminal book on race-based admissions practices called The Shape of the River. And that came out in, in 1998. And that's an interesting comparison, that work product with the work product that was sports specific. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that too. And then you also had the Spencer Foundation that has done some sponsorship of academic writings, including one that I'm going to talk about here in a minute. And then you have the American Council on Education that put out uh, some research. But the work of all of these foundations and all of these academicians and all of the work product that came from it doesn't answer the question of why universities are in the business of big-time college sports. In fact, all that work only begs the question because there's this presumption that's been built in that that those two things, the academic interests of big-time universities and the existence of big-time college sports just can't live together. So what we're going to do is take a look anecdotally at a few things that have come out of that community that I think start to tease out the truth of why big-time universities are in the business of big-time college sports. And I want to start with a 1994 book by an academician, John Thielen. He's at the University of Kentucky, and he studies, researches, and writes in the areas of higher education with an emphasis on higher education public policy. And he has written on college sports and the relationship between college sports and the academic mission of universities. And that 1994 book is titled Games, Colleges, Play, subtitled Scandal and Reform in Intercollegiate Athletics. And in it, Professor Thielen analyzes some key reform movements, starting with the 1929 Carnegie Report on American College Athletics that uh, was the product of three years of field study and an extensive report that, in my judgment, made a case against the marriage of big-time college sports, and really football was a target of the report, and the academic and intellectual mission of higher education. And Thielen looks at at that document in a really thoughtful way and and I think a more realistic way than a lot of others have because it's it's become liturgy as it's been pulled forward in through the 20th century and into the 21st century. And when we talk about the reform movements, we're going to talk a lot about the Carnegie Report. But in the introduction to his book, Professor Thielen tells a really interesting story. And the introduction uh, to the book uh, is titled American Higher Education's Peculiar Institution, which of course is big time college sports. And then there is a section separately subtitled called The College Hero, the symbol of which age and which value. And in it, Professor Thielen talks about how Harold Red Grange was eulogized after he died on January 28th, 1991. And we all know who Red Grange is. He is the galloping ghost. He is the Wheaton Iceman. He is the personification of everything that's right about college sports and became a symbol of amateurism and sportsmanship and hard work and humility and all that wrapped up in one of the best athletes ever to take the field. It's an amazing story and Red Grange apparently was all that and then some. Yet Thielen points out that so much of Grange's mystique and his hero persona was the creation of a sports media 
that was driven by overstatement, hyperbole, and the need to create mythical figures to enhance the value of the sports product. Thielen writes, Although Grange's accomplishments and modesty were genuine, his popularity as a national hero was a product of mass media and the press. Sports writers, not teammates or classmates, created and projected his legendary image. Writer Damon Runyon, whose beat usually dealt with the racetracks, gambling, and sporting life of New York City, looked to the Midwest for subject matter and wrote that Grange is three or four men rolled into one. He is Jack Dempsey, Babe Ruth, Al Jolson, Pavel Nurmi, and Man o War. About a week after all of these articles appeared, just following Grange's death, there was a letter to the editor that was published in the Washington Post. And I'm, I'm going to read it to you. It's short. Last week marked the passing of two great men of the University of Illinois, one a popular athlete, the other a great scientist. While the news of football player Harold Red Grange's death rightly appeared on the Post's front page, January 29th, physicist John Bardeen's obituary, January 31st, was consigned to the metro section. True, the former was a household name, while the latter was a man who spoke in a whisper and shunned the public eye. But John Bardeen did as much to change our everyday lives as Albert Einstein or Thomas Edison. John Bardeen was the only person ever to win two Nobel Prizes in the same field. Perhaps his greatest achievement was to solve one of the mysteries of modern physics by developing a microscopic theory of superconductivity. As a co-inventor of the transistor, he helped us revolutionize the electronics industry. Look around. Practically every electronic device you see depends on the transistor, the computer, TV, radio, even the car. For these contributions, Mr. Bardeen should be noted as one of the most influential scientists of the 20th century. The Post often bemoans the state of science literacy in this country. Part of the solution is to award as much honor to our great scientists as to our great athletes. Now, let's press fast forward to January 23rd, 2001, and one of the most consequential speeches in the history of college sports. And that occurred at the National Press Club when then-Indiana University President Miles Brand was invited to speak on the state of American college athletics. And Brand was in the uh, news around that time because he had just fired legendary Indiana basketball coach Bob Knight. I'm going to talk at length about Brand's speech because that speech, along with five others going through 2006, are really important in understanding the business model of big-time college sports in the 21st century, but also how the academic community, through Miles Brand, tried to reconcile all of the tensions that had been identified in these prior reform movements. And Brand's, Brand became the NCAA president in 2003 and served in that post until 2009 when he passed away from cancer. But he was the first former university president to serve in that post since the 1930s. The, the prior presidents had been uh, complete outsiders to the academic community. Walter Byers, who was the president of the NCAA from 1951 to 1987 and its longest serving president, 
was a journalist before he uh, joined the NCAA. He was a cowboy, and he was a, an entrepreneur, and he was a business guy, and he was the architect of many of the basic tenets of the business of big-time college sports. And then, after Byers retired, Dick Schultz, a former athletics director from the University of Virginia, served in the Post until 1994, and he resigned in a cloud of scandal. And then he was succeeded by Cedric Dempsey, who was also a, out of the athletics director model. And he served uh, as NCAA president until Miles Brand was hired in 2003. So this 2001 speech by Brand at the National Press Club was in some ways an audition for his move into the NCAA. And it's a fascinating speech because it's one-stop shopping for how Brand was starting to reconciling this tension between the academic mission of universities and uh, big-time college sports. It occurred between about 1998 and 2003, and that's when the Mellon Foundation was really ramping up its case against big-time college sports. The Knight Commission was in the process of issuing its fourth report, which came 10 years after its initial seminal report in 1991 that was built around the notion of presidential leadership in college athletics as a way to build some guardrails around the increasing commercialization and professionalization of sports. But that 2001 night report that was titled A Call to Action, and then there was a foreword to it called 10 Years Later. The Knight Commission had to wave the white flag and admit that its core principle of presidential leadership had done little to stem the problems that the report identified in 1991. And those, in fact, had gotten worse between 1991 and 2001. And the commission viewed the threat of big time college sports and the you know, compromised academic standards, the uh, belief that scandal had tainted the universities, and all of these things had only gotten worse. So you had Brand delivering this speech in the, the heat of all of this turmoil within the reform movement, and he became a symbol, kind of the knight in shining armor, because Coach Knight was viewed as the epitome of everything that some of the reformists uh, stood against, and you had this celebrity coach that was acting inconsistent with the university's values. And he had so much power built in through the alumni base and the fan base and had achieved this external power base that the perception was that Indiana University couldn't control. So Brand comes in and he fires Bob Knight, and he is the toast of the town in academic circles. But he tells an interesting story about Priorities that I think also goes to this question of what it is that universities get from big-time college sports. So Brand describes the public response that the key milestones in the Bob Knight saga had at the national level. And this was a national story, not just a sports story, but it was a mainstream media national story that captivated the public over a period of months. And Brand talks about a press conference that he held in May of 2000. This is just a few months before his speech at the National Press Club. 
And that press conference was designed to announce the release of an investigation that had been done into Knight and some allegations of uh, inappropriate interaction with a particular player. And uh, he announced his zero tolerance policy, and, and that was really designed to placate some of the university academic interests. But Brand describes that press conference, and it was just a, a feeding frenzy. He says that there were 237 reporters and 27 TV cameras in this media room on the campus of IU. And then a couple of months later in September, after uh, Knight didn't comply with the terms of the Zero Tolerance Agreement, Brand fired Knight and he had a press conference in September announcing the firing. And that too, according to Brand, received quote unquote voluminous press coverage. But then he contrasts that, that public interest in the Bobby Knight story with a press conference in November of 2000 that was held in the exact same press room as the prior two news conferences in which Brand announced the largest single charitable gift in Indiana University history, $105 million for, the, for IU's Human Genome Initiative to map the human genome. And at that press conference, conference, there were six reporters and four TV cameras. But to speak to the power of intercollegiate athletics and big-time college sports in higher education was the fact that even within the context of the speech in which Brand was going to into minute detail to tease out the misplaced priorities concerns that academicians have about big-time college sports. When that press conference got to the Q&A, nearly every question was about Bob Knight and his handling of Knight's firing and the impact uh, that it has had on IU and college sports and, and brand and all of this stuff. And it was just a really a rich irony that when this speech that was designed to create this narrative that we've lost our perspective and we have our priorities upside down. And where was the mainstream media when we were announcing this $105 million gift? <laughs> but in that context, th that the power of the sports narrative overwhelmed the media's response. And this is the National Press Club. So the audience are members of the media, mostly powerful mainstream media, and their orientation automatically, instinctively, after that speech, was to ask questions about Bob Knight. So both of those anecdotes speak to the power of sports in America's consciousness and in popular culture, but they really beg the question of why, despite all of the ways that the academy believes that big-time college sports harm the academic product or sully the reputation of institutions. Why are they still in it? And to get to that, I want to press rewind to 1929 and that Carnegie Foundation report for the advancement of teaching titled American College Athletics. The report was written principally by a gentleman named Howard Savage. But the president of the Carnegie Foundation, uh, a man named Henry Pritchett, he wrote a preface to that report. And it was titled, Athletics, an Element in the Evolution of the American University. And Pritchett spoke very directly to why he believed 
that big time sports were so important to institutions of higher learning. And he discusses the power of the burgeoning sports media market and its relationship to broader university values and goals. Pritchett says, into this game of publicity, the university of the present day enters eagerly. It desires for itself the, the publicity that the newspapers can supply. It wants students, it wants popularity, but above all, it wants money and always more money. The athlete is the most available publicity material the college has. A great scientific discovery will make good press material for a few days, but nothing to compare to that of the performance of a first-class athlete. Thousands are interested in the athlete all the time, while the scientist is at best only a passing show. I think Pritchett's quote gets to the fundamental root issue of what it is that universities want. What do they want? They want publicity. They want prestige. They want power. They want loyalty. They want social currency. And they want money, 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 money. And one of the things that the modern university has not been honest about is the extent to which they have valued money in their quest to serve their mission. So there's this notion that the central academic intellectual mission, which uh, Miles Brand stated pretty accurately in that 2001 speech, uh, Brand said, universities exist to discover, apply, transmit, and preserve knowledge. All of our activities, at least indirectly, must subserve those goals. And in order to serve those goals, you need money. So there has been this crazy arms race in higher education in the late 20th century and, and 21st century to accumulate wealth for wealth's sake, because there's this perception that uh, if you have money, then you are better able to serve your mission, regardless of how that money is used. And in that regard, one of the things that a lot of the critics of big-time college sports don't honestly acknowledge is that just as there has been an athletics arms race, and that was really one of the predicate concerns uh, heading into the Knight Commission's work, that athletics departments were spending all this crazy money. Brand talked about that in his 2001 speech. And that's been a recurring concern that uh, reformists have used to try to put the brakes on big-time uh, sports. But you, you never hear these same critics talking about the academic arms race. And one of the, I think, dishonest narratives that have been painted by the academic reformists is that athletics exists in this isolated bubble that's completely separate from the rest of the university. And that's simply not the case. And they do that in part to be able to disassociate the business operations of the general university from the business operations of the athletics department. And if you can isolate the athletics department, you can view it as outside of the, the main business of, of the university. But there's an arms race on the academic side, and you have universities spending ridiculous money to build five-star dorms and five-star food courts, and they're building new buildings at an unprecedented rate. 
all to try to keep up with the academic Joneses in an effort to attract more money. And ancillary to some of these big reform movements, there have been a number of academicians who, who were supportive of those movements, who have written independently and, and, and have done books and articles and have talked about the fact that the actual mission statements of universities, and, and this cuts across different types of universities and size and purpose and, and mission and all that. Do not mention big-time college sports. There are a few, not many. But the notion seems to be that if big-time college sports were central to the mission of big-time universities, then it would be mentioned in the mission statements. And that argument has some appeal on its surface. But my response to that is, well, show me in those same mission statements where it says that a primary purpose of the university's mission is to acquire wealth for wealth's sake. And that's precisely what major universities do when they try to build up their endowment, not because they're using that endowment to uh, fund their operations or their academic initiatives as defined in, in their mission, but because the endowment in and of itself is an expression and a way to measure the value of the university and its, its prestige and its power and all of the things that go into the value and brand of the university product. And in the 21st century American university, the uh, in-system stakeholders and the decision makers and the folks who are responsible for governance have convinced themselves that money for money's sake is essential to the mission. So you have this, you know, mission to money to mission circle. And if you watch that circle long enough, it's impossible to tell the two apart. And that has certainly been uh, my experience in relationships to the universities that I have had connections to. And sometimes it's really difficult to figure out how all that money is lining up with the mission. And that's particularly true when you see how the the academy has managed the academic arms race. And there's all this criticism about you know, this athletic spending and building these Taj Mahal facilities and paying coaches these multi-million dollar salaries and all of that stuff. And those are fair criticisms, and, and we'll talk about those. But there doesn't seem to be the same level of curiosity when a university is, is spending money to build you know, these Taj Mahal dorms and food courts and student play toys and all of these things that are essential, at least in the in the minds of the university decision makers, to keep the money coming in, to keep the tuition going up and to increase the alumni base with rich people that are going to bring money, 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 money. It all comes back to those things that Henry Pritchett identified, you know, power, prestige, perception, loyalty, social currency, and all of those things are tied back to money. And, and that's how the game is played. I think an interesting insight into what it is that universities value and how they actually spend their dollars is taking a look at their Form 990 nonprofit tax return. So every nonprofit has to file this document, this tax return called a Form 990, and it requires certain disclosures that are designed to preserve the integrity of the designation of nonprofit and to make sure that the money that the nonprofits are bringing in and, and how they're spending it is consistent with their stated nonprofit purpose. And for the NCAA, for the member institutions, they are all 
education nonprofits. They hang their nonprofit hat on the peg of education. And an interesting insight into the university's value system is to look at the Schedule J on the Form 990. And the Schedule J requires the nonprofit to identify all of their key employees and their most highly compensated employees. That's an interesting insight because I believe that if you show me your budget, I'll show you your values. In the nonprofit world, the Schedule J is really that disclosure. When you take a good hard look at who the major universities are paying and what those people do, you're going to see that that money, they're, they're not placing that value on Nobel Prize winning scientists or Pulitzer Prize winning literature professors or rock star professors or arts and sciences deans or any of the meat and potatoes of the liberal arts community that they claim that we should be valuing. So when you look at these Form 990s and the Schedule Js, where's the money going? Well, it's going to money movers, money managers, money makers. So you see these financial people, investment people who are making over a million dollars a year. You have people in fundraising who are making the big bucks, and they're on the Schedule J's. And that goes directly to this mission, money, money, missions. Then you have facilities managers, the people who are uh, doing the facilities financing, they, who are doing the facilities management, and the physical plant expansion. Those people are making a ridiculous amount of money. They're on the Schedule J's. They're in the Form 990s because... The universities value those positions and they're putting their money where their mouth is there. But what other categories do you have? Well, if the university has a medical center that's integrated into the overall nonprofit umbrella of the university, you're probably going to find some heavy hitting medical center administrators and highly compensated physicians. And then you're probably going to find the university president and maybe a university wide high level administrator. But you're not going to find the professors. You're not going to find John Bardeen, who was the subject of that letter to the editor following Red Grange's death. He's not going to be on the Schedule J. He's not going to be a highly compensated employee. And no one who is similarly situated to him is going to be on the Form 990 because that's not what the university is valuing when push comes to shove. So then the other category of uh, university employees that you're going to find on those key employees, most highly compensated employee lists are big time football and men's basketball coaches. All right. So what do all of those categories of employees have in common? They all, to one degree or another, provide money, power, prestige, loyalty, social currency, and all of the things that the university desires that ultimately lead to the ways that it believes it's meeting its mission. And it is true that in the, the big-time universities who have big-time sports programs, like the Power Five universities, that when you look at these Schedule Js, the head football and men's basketball coaches are making more than anybody. But why is that? And in my judgment, that is the case 
because big time football and big time men's basketball deliver money, power, prestige, loyalty, and social currency more consistently, more effectively, and more efficiently than any other university enterprise. And when it comes to the uh, exposure that a university gets, its public perception, and its ability to market itself to the outside world, the big-time football and big-time men's basketball schools are in a goldmine of exposure opportunities. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Because one of the primary false narratives that has been spun from the academic community that's hostile to big-time college sports and all of these reform movements is that big-time college sports loses money. It doesn't make money. So this notion that participating in the big-time college sports sweepstakes through football and men's basketball is a fool's errand because those products simply not only don't make money, but they're having to be subsidized from general university funds. And that that creates this kind of us versus them narrative that's embedded in a lot of these academic reform philosophies. So let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at that assumption because it is so much a part of the way that a lot of these in-system stakeholder groups think about big-time college sports, that we need to tease that out a little bit because it also goes to what I believe is the primary benefit of uh, big-time college sports to universities and what they really want. And just to, to gild that point that I just made, I want to talk a little bit about the 2010 Knight Commission report. And that was the uh, last Knight Commission report. And the name of it is Restoring the Balance, Dollars, Values, and the Future of College Sports. As the title of, of that report uh, suggests, the focus of the commission's work was to look at out-of-control athletic spending. That was the narrative that they painted. In the transmittal letter from the co-chairs of the 2010 Knight Commission and, and this report, they said that the most urgent of the remaining goals is financial reform. The costs of competing in big-time intercollegiate sports have soared. Rates of spending growth are breathtaking. This financial arms race threatens the combined viability of athletics programs and the integrity of our universities. It cannot be maintained. Then in the introduction to the report, the commission says, only a tiny number of college athletics programs reap the financial rewards that come from selling high-priced tickets and winning championships. According to a U.S. A Today analysis, just seven athletics programs generated enough revenue to finish in the black in each of the past five years. Then the Knight Commission went, went so far as to suggest that, quote, reliance on institutional resources to underwrite athletics programs is reaching the point at which some institutions must choose between funding freshman English and funding the football team, end quote. I, that's powerful stuff, and and that's what has been put out into the public domain by some of these uh, reform movements. But what isn't mentioned in that description of the dire financial condition of the big-time universities that host big-time college sports is that the rate 
of athletic spending compared to the overall spending of a university has remained constant and quite low at between 3 and 5%. In fact, Miles Brand in 2006, when he was NCAA president, he did a a speech at the National Press Club. It was almost exactly five years after that 2001 speech that he gave. And it was a much different speech because at that point, Miles Brand, he was a true believer in the big time college sports business model, even though he was trying to appease the academic interest. But he announced the findings of a presidential task force on the future of Division I college sports. And 2006 was the centennial of the NCAA and Brand was out on the circuit speech. And this presidential task force, I believe, was tasked to get something done that coincided with the centennial and to, and to do a big picture analysis of big time college sports. One of the central components of that presidential task force's work was the financial stability and condition of big time college sports and its impact on higher education. And the committee that studied those financial interests concluded that there wasn't a financial crisis in big-time college sports. And even though the rate of spending had increased at a rate that was higher than I think a lot of people would have preferred, the actual spending itself compared to the overall spending of the university remained constant and quite small at 3 to 5%. And Miles Brand came out and said, in a way that was facially inconsistent with this Knight Commission narrative, that there really wasn't a financial crisis and that the rate of spending was really in, not a significant part of the overall university financial picture. So athletic spending was not a threat to the integrity, existence, or business of the big-time university. And there are just so many myths flying around mostly generated by the academic community about athletic spending. It's just almost impossible to get accurate information on the true financial picture of a university and its athletic spending, in part because universities are very opaque about their university spending, particularly their athletic spending. And the universities have control over that. If they want transparency, then they can insist on transparency, but they, they haven't done that. And that's been one of the concerns, I think that's a legitimate concern that has come out of external reform efforts like the Knight Commission, and that's been something they've talked about for a long time. But the fact of the matter is that university financing is very complicated. It's defined by subsidies and cross-subsidies and related party transfers. It's a shell game. It's a massive shell game where the productive parts of the university, the money-making parts of the university, subsidize other parts. And we're going to talk about that when we talk about Miles Brand's collegiate model, because that's really an essential component of the way that the athletic spending works in athletics departments. But again, this narrative that there's this financial crisis and that big time college sports are responsible for it, again, begs the question of why, why would universities be in the business of big time college sports? So I'm going to get to the heart of that in my judgment. And it ties into the nature of the product and the value that it has independent of the money that it generates. One of the things that is unique about college sports and one of the reasons that it has such high market value is that it is one of the few remaining truly live TV events in American media programming. 
almost everything is taped. In college sports, you have this, this gold mine. You have a live entertainment product that is associated in a positive way with institutions and people that add value to those associations. And that's hard to come by. In that uh, 2001 speech before the National Press Club, Miles Brand described college sports as reality TV, and, and he was doing that in a humorous way. But he's correct. But the reality TV that he was comparing college sports to really wasn't rea reality TV. Survivor isn't reality TV. It's taped. And you can find out the outcome if you aren't concerned about spoiling the end. In college sports, the outcome is always uncertain. It's live. And you know this, and the value of live programming, if you are a diehard fan and you tape games, I'm kind of off the grid now, and so I don't have cable TV or dish TV or anything like that. But back when I did, I would TiVo a lot of my games and, and record them. And then try my best not to find out the outcome of the game so I could watch it as if I were watching it live. And it's never the same. It's simply not the same. So college athletics and professional athletics have capitalized on this unique feature of sports programming. So you, you have reality TV, but it's live reality TV. And it's live reality TV that is staged to market and promote the product. So one of the things that a lot of people don't understand about the packaging of the product is that you're getting some critical analysis and you have this staging that makes it look like you're going to get a critical analysis of the game and that you're watching a, a live event and you're going to get a, a kind of an objective description of what's happening. And you get some of that in the play-by-play -play and all that. But by and large, that product is packaged to be as appealing and favorable to all of the participants as possible because the people that are making money from that staging, the big media companies and their advertisers, they want the consumers to come back. And you're not going to hear a thoughtful discussion during a, an ESPN basketball game about the exploitation model that is playing out right in, in real time in front of you. You might get that in a 30 for 30 or some somebody who's commenting on it on the side. But the purpose of those games, the way they're staged, is to market the game. And by marketing the game, they're marketing the universities that participate in them, the campuses and schools that host them, the coaches that are, are treated as cultural icons, and the players who are wearing a jersey that has the name of the school on the front. I mean, that is a win-win-win uh, situation. And so the way I think about the benefit to the big-time universities of big-time college sports, and again, that's football and, and men's basketball, is this, if they had to go out into the private market and purchase, say, let's see, how many minutes, 120, let's say that uh, you're going to get a 30-second spot. So if they had to go out into the market and purchase 240 advertising slots for their university, what would it cost? What would it cost? There's actually a sports economics valuation uh, formula called media equivalence. 
that sports economists have used to try to capture the value of that. But but what's interesting is that you're not comparing apples to apples. So I, I use the NCAA uh, tournament as a good example of this. And you've all seen these commercials. So so during the NCAA men's basketball tournament. And this is part of the contract that uh, the NCAA has with CBS and Turner. Each school that's participating in a given tournament game gets a handful of free slots and where the university is featured. And, and you've seen these commercials where you get shots of the different components of university life and the academic exploits and, and all the things that the university wants to market and brand. And the schools don't have to pay for that. All right. But the fact of the matter is, Compared to the rest of the free advertising they're getting outside of those that's produced advertising, those produced advertisements aren't worth that much. And people don't pay a lot of attention to them. Maybe some do, but but most don't. They want to get back to the game. And the game is the advertising. And it is gold. It is absolute gold. So with the expansion of sports programming and the proliferation of media outlets and, and technologies, universities are getting almost a 24-7 running commercial for their university where the coverage is always positive, even if the university loses or even if the university is, has some non-sports related controversy or there's something that they're having to contend with on a public relations level, they still have this incredibly favorable venue where they can get free advertising. And on the backside of that, everybody feels good. Everybody feels good. And I don't know how you put a price tag on that. There's this media equivalence formula and a couple of sports economists who have been influential in the college sports market and have testified, well, at least one of them has testified as an expert witness for athletes in these antitrust suits. His name's Dan Rasher and a colleague of his, Andy Schwartz, have written extensively on this. And when they were looking at the benefits of big time college sports to universities. They look at all of these things and, and they actually did a study. The University of Alabama, Birmingham, back a few years ago, decided to end its football program. And it was a controversial decision. And then they uh, brought in Rasher and Schwartz and they did an analysis, an economics analysis on whether that was a smart thing and whether they should you know, reinstate the, the program and looked at a lot of these things. But these narratives that have been groomed in academic circles that big time sports don't make money, they lose money. Money, that they have very little benefit flies in the face of common sense and demand in the market. And so one of the things that Rasher and Schwartz point out is that the demand to get into Division I competition and to move from Division II or some other division to try to get into the grand sweepstakes has been so intense that on, I think, three separate occasions, the NCAA has placed a moratorium on entrance into this Division I market. And each time when the moratorium was lifted, the demand for access to the Division I market picked up at the same pace at, at, that it left off at and increased. So there's this crazy demand to get into the sweepstakes. And the universities, they have smart advisors and they have smart accountants and lawyers and economists and, and business people. And you have to believe that they're making an intelligent business decision because why in the world would you clamor to enter a market that has no benefit, that loses money, that 
draws down on the academic reputation of your school that uh, doesn't result in increased giving if the team wins. It doesn't result in increased applicant pools when the team wins. And those are all the narratives that the, the academic community has been spinning. And there's a disconnect there that simply can't be reconciled. But the fact of the matter is, in terms of the action that universities are taking, they're staying in the Division I market. They're playing the, the big-time sweepstakes. And schools that are on the outside are clamoring to get in. So that, I think, is in a nutshell why universities are in the game of big-time college sports. So one of the themes that I wanted to make clear in this episode is that the people who are in charge don't act as if they're in charge. And it leads to the next logical question, who is in charge? And so in episode three of the Big Amateurism Monologues, we're going to start talking about the stakeholders and we're going to start with the NCAA. What is the NCAA? So thanks again, and I will be back at you in 48 hours with more of the Big Amateurism Monologues.